tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. It's a shame that the last 10 years of his life largely overshadows all he accomplished prior to his descent into madness. Truth be told, Howard Hughes was a genius, an innovator in business, aviation, film, and in his lifetime, was one of the most financially successful people in the world. His work ethic was legendary, as was his disregard for his own safety, especially when it came to his first true love, flying. That disregard would eventually cause him to be involved in a plane crash of an experimental aircraft that almost killed him. While he did eventually recover, he would never be the same. In chronic pain for the rest of his life, his over-medication to address the issue pushed his struggles with obsessive-compulsive disorder into stratospheric levels, causing him to become the eccentric recluse that most remember him for. Despite all that, what Hughes did during his time in Las Vegas helped the market evolve from the seedy place run by mobsters to a respectable industry, even if that wasn't his intention and resulted purely because his name was attached to the legendary great acquisition of Las Vegas. Due to Hughes' reclusive and private nature, no one really knows what happened during this time in Vegas. Despite extensive research on the subject, the man and the history, the only way we could even begin to tell his story was to accept that it would be impossible to create a definitive accounting of what happened. So the goal became simple. Tell the story of what most likely happened based on the research available, the varying stories, the history of the time surrounding these events, and logic. Even if most accounts say Howard was applying little logic to most of what he was doing during this time. Before we talk about what he did in Vegas, we have to step back a bit to explain what brought him there in the first place. In the early 60s, Hughes' aggressive moves, erratic behavior, and excessive spending to bring his commercial airline TWA into the jet age motivated stockholders to file suit against him for mismanagement. Not only did they win that case, but a few years later, the U.S. government forced Howard to sell TWA, citing that owning both Hughes Aircraft and a commercial airline was a conflict of interest. On May 3, 1966, Hughes received over a quarter of a billion dollars for his shares in TWA. That equates to about triple that amount in today's money. The problem with having that much money is that if you don't put it back into the U.S. economy, it becomes classified as income and is taxed at a much higher tax rate. To avoid that fate, Howard began to look for things to invest in. In the 1960s, U.S. Attorney General Bobby Kennedy made going after the mob his primary focus. Las Vegas represented the public front to the business of organized crime, making it a clear target for cleanup. 
with the help of the IRS and the FBI. Anything and everything that could be done to systematically investigate the mob, find the skim, and harass them into selling was done. Properties were raided, casino owners' phones were tapped, People like Jay Sarno were even forced to sell their properties just for being affiliated with those found to be involved with organized crime. With so many people looking to sell, and Hughes looking to put all that money into active income, it created the perfect storm. Howard Hughes always liked Las Vegas. He visited many times during the 40s and 50s. Hank Greenspun, best known as the founder of the Las Vegas Sun newspaper, is credited with persuading Hughes to move to Las Vegas and invest that money, with benefits like no state income tax and the ability to buy large chunks of real estate. But more than that, he appealed to Howard's vanity. Unlike Los Angeles, where Howard was just one of several heavy hitters, in Las Vegas, he would be the most important person in the entire state and help pull them out of a bad economic slump. After months of indecision, on November 24, 1966, Hughes was loaded onto a train via stretcher bound for Las Vegas. While en route, word got out that Howard Hughes was coming to Las Vegas. To avoid being seen, a plan was put into place to misdirect attention. It started by having the train he was on stop four or five miles outside of town in the early morning. There, they were met by several vehicles. Hughes was then moved from the train into one of those vehicles which would transport him the rest of the way to the Desert Inn, where he had rented out the top two floors of the hotel. To misdirect attention, Howard had several limos drive out ahead of them. When they arrived, the limos pulled up at the main entrance of the property, drawing the attention of crowds nearby, excited to see who was in them. While Hughes and company entered the property undetected per the employee entrance. At Hughes' request, he had the elevators at the Desert Inn changed, so the only way they would go to the 8th or ninth floor was by key. But the Desert Inn was actually the backup plan. The original plan was to stay at the Dunes, since the top floor of the hotel tower was where the top of the strip restaurant and lounge was located. Hughes instead bought out all the suites and rooms on the floor below in preparation for his relocation to Vegas. However, as would become commonplace, Howard didn't arrive when expected and instead delayed the move several times. The Dunes held on to the rooms for a few weeks before informing Howard and company they would have to give up half of them for high rollers. Refusing to share the floor with anyone, the plans were changed to the Desert Inn. Initially, Desert Inn owner Mo Dalitz was thrilled to have Howard staying with him because Hughes was previously known to bet as much as $100,000 per hand in blackjack. But this was 1966. And not only was he not gambling, he wouldn't leave his room. That's because by 1966, Howard had fallen deep into prescription drug addiction to treat the constant pain he was in, resulting from his latest and most severe plane accident. A situation that exacerbated his undiagnosed OCD, causing him to elect isolation from the outside world to avoid being exposed to germs. Howard's stay at the Desert Inn was only supposed to be 10 days. A month later, Daylitz wanted Hughes out. Even though Hughes was paying $28,000 per day for the top two floors of the hotel, those rooms were needed for high rollers coming in town for the Christmas and New Year's season. Former FBI and CIA man Bob Mayhew was Hughes' right-hand guy at the time. While in Vegas, 
he would become known as the face and voice of Howard Hughes, as contact with Howard was done primarily through handwritten memos. Phone calls even became a means of emergency contact only. After negotiating multiple extensions, one even requiring the help of Teamsters Union head Jimmy Hoffa to call in a favor, Davids threatened to forcibly remove Hughes if he didn't leave. Bob made it clear to Howard that if he wanted to stay at the Desert Inn any longer, the only way that could happen was if he bought the place. Had Daylitz not recently been indicted for tax evasion, he wouldn't have even considered selling, but the fact is, he had been. At the time, the Desert Inn's value was estimated between six and seven million dollars. Depending on the source, Hughes reportedly paid 13 million for it. Some say the price was intentionally much higher than the market value, so the offer would be too good to turn down, while others point to it as one of the first signs that Hughes' mental capacity was declining. Either way, he had the money to spend, and people were more than happy to take it. Now Hughes just needed a gaming license. The problem was, there was absolutely no way Howard had any interest in appearing before the gaming control board, as was required at the time. So. Nevada Governor Paul Laxalt stepped in. He appealed to the commission saying, if they could license someone with a questionable past like Mo Dalitz had, surely they could approve Howard Hughes without requiring him to make an appearance. Those that voiced their criticism that Hughes was being shown favoritism had a deaf ear turned to them, especially after Howard greased the wheels of progress by pledging two to 300,000 per year for the next 20 years to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And so, the first gaming license in history was issued without following the standard protocol established since the creation of the Gaming Commission. It would only be the beginning of the exceptions that would be made in the name of Hughes. Despite dragging out the process on minute details, once the deal was done, Hughes was thrilled. In a letter to Mayhew, Howard asked, how many more of these toys can I buy? And so began the great acquisition of Las Vegas. Leveraging Hughes' arrival, Governor Laxalt, Hank Greenspun, Bank of Las Vegas President E. Perry Thomas, and Baron Hilton lobbied to change Nevada gaming laws to make it easier for corporations to hold licenses. It was advertised as a way that they could clean up the city in the gaming industry's image as being run by mobsters. In 1967, Nevada State Legislature changed its regulations from requiring all stakeholders in a company to be licensed to only requiring the majority stakeholders in a corporation. Despite all the talk of reform and buying the mob out of Vegas, the amusing truth to the story is the only thing that changed was the owner on record. While Hughes would play the role of legitimate messiah, someone still needed to run the casinos, and the people most qualified to do so were already doing it. So that's why they stayed. And so the skim and everything the government wanted to stop continued without interruption. In fact, for his 13 million, Hughes didn't even own the land the Desert Inn sat on. Daylitz and company still own that. Regardless, once the Desert Inn deal was done, Howard systematically began purchasing one Vegas property after another. E. Perry Thomas virtually became his private banker moving his office into the eighth floor of the Desert Inn, the one below the floor Hughes was staying on. Together, in 1967, they purchased the Sands for $14.6 million, 
the New Frontier for 23 million, and the Castaways for 2 to 3 million, depending on the source. The New Frontier acquisition is a subject of some controversy and accusations of insider information. That's because just days before his mentor, E. Perry Thomas, helped close the deal for the Hughes purchase, Steve Wynn borrowed money to increase his 3% ownership in the New Frontier to 5%. It was Wynn's first financial maneuver in Las Vegas. Four years later, in 1971, Wynn would purchase the 1.1 acres of strip real estate south of Caesars Palace, who was currently leasing the land from Howard and being used as a parking lot for $1.1 million. Wynn promptly flipped it under the passive-aggressive rent that a Caesar did We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Yeah.